You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. You're listening to America's Web Radio. And now time for the Classic Car Show with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber. This is Kevin Flood on the Classic Car Show for America's Web Radio. And today's guest is Wayne Scott press officer and editor of TR Action Magazine for the TR Register. He's an experienced freelance presenter, voiceover artist and producer working across multiple media types including audio, video and print for both online and broadcast. He specialises in creating online media content for the motor industry. The TR Register was founded in 1970. The TR Register is one of the most successful one-mate clubs in the world. The TR Register caters for the needs of owners, past, present and future of the entire range of Triumph TR sports cars from TR2 to TR8 and their associated derivatives, Swallow, Duretti, Peerless, Warwick, Italia and Grinnell. Good afternoon, Wayne. Afternoon, Kevin. Very nice <laughs> to be speaking to you. That's great. And what, what don't you do? Well, it, yeah, it sounds like a kind of LinkedIn CV or resume, that does, doesn't it? But uh, yeah, lots of stuff really yeah. which anybody who works in the media knows is what you have to do to keep going and keep surviving but, yeah indeed give us tell us a little bit about wayne and how you got into the media and then on to into, into classic cars i guess well the, the, the two sort of worlds collided really i'd spent a lot of time as a club dj in uh, sort of my teens and uh, as parents do they quite rightly said uh, you know you ought to uh, have a backup plan so that backup plan really was going to uni and learning all about audio engineering and music technology and as as I went through education and life, I ended up the other side of the microphone, so to speak, and spent 10 years in radio, uh, producing various different things and presenting shows all over the place, as you do when you're a freelance presenter. But in the background to sort of my professional life, if you like, was this love of cars and classic cars. And it really stemmed from my father and his Triumph TR4 that he owned, um, which was a fascination of mine throughout me growing up. He was rebuilding it when I was, uh, you know, sort of a young toddler and he used to go and sort of sit there in the garage and watch him putting together this old car and used to be fascinated with it and as I got older I had a real love and passion for it until eventually I, I got TRs of my own and throughout that I was always involved with the club as my dad was he was a local area group leader for the TR register back in the late 70s early 80s so it's really been in the in the blood in the family and at the moment I'm working with the TR register to sort of combine my professional life with my real passion which which is a, a great thing and what everyone really dreams of doing, I guess. So uh, it's been great stuff. So I guess you've got the ideal job, really, at this point. <laughs> I can't complain. No, it's good fun. It's, uh, it's not without its pitfalls and stresses, as you can imagine, but uh, great fun. And TR Register is a fantastic club and it was such a great history and, and, and a real ability to look forward to the future as well. It's a real honour to be working with them as well. So it's, it's great. What um, what other motoring stuff are you involved in your professional life at the moment? Well, after I uh, left radio, um, it's it's a funny old game radio, and I was always interested in motorsport. And over a period of time, a few jobs would come to me because people knew I was a bit of a petrol head. And I spent six years presenting podcasts um, for. BBC Top Gear Live and over those six years I learned a lot about reporting on cars 
um, test driving cars, writing about cars, uh, you know, and interviewing people involved in the automotive industry. And really, it was the contacts and the uh, the things I learned from working at BBC Top Gear that sort of led me to think, well, I can take what I can do in the radio and my knowledge of the media and, and combine it. So I worked with a lot of uh, classic car companies, a lot of uh, classic te- racing teams, some of the modern teams as well, and some of the media outlets to provide press and PR support marketing support and also uh, to produce media as well i'm a specialized in online video so with the changing internet world base of media you know you can uh, use online videos to really showcase what companies can do and um, in recent years also that's led into social media so there's all these sort of aspects of media and, and my passion and knowledge for motoring that i bring together really to help out quite a few clients now that i have uh, within historic motoring and and beyond really so yeah it's, it's it's a real passion of mine that's developed into a job wonderful by the sound of it <laughs> can you give us um any overview of any of the clients you're working with in the classic market that would be interesting to the listeners well, I mentioned BBC Top Gear, which has obviously come to an end for well-documented reasons. Um, I've worked with the clubs like the TR Register to manage a, a lot of the stuff that they do in the media. So if the, a classic car magazine wants a review of a TR, I can be the person who puts them in touch with those people in the club and, and really seeding articles and information out in the wider press about TRs to promote the club. Also, promoting the club through social media, through uh, the production of uh, online media as well. One of the benefits of the club is uh, we run a big series of technical seminars and we film them and put them online for our members to access. Um, other clients I work with, there's uh, all sorts of people out there in the industry, really, that uh, work with... Uh, I'm just about to talk to Miller's Oils for uh, the forthcoming year of... Uh, their campaign with a Le Mans team for Le Mans Classic as well. So, by the way, from an oil company, I have a company that supplies car covers and gazebos and race and rally shelters and uh, motorsport equipment that uh, I assist with their press releases and social media. So, yeah, the great thing about motoring in the motoring industry is there's so many different aspects of it and a wide range of activities that all of these companies are involved in. So, And they all need access to the media and they all need someone who can write and produce video and uh, you know, really evangelise about their businesses in front of the media. So that's what I hope to help them with. Yeah, I'm not uh, speculate on your age, but I think you're younger than me. I'm 32, um, Kevin. Yeah. I'm 56. <laughs> so, Just a um, <laughs> Well, according to the guys that I do this show with, um, the show goes out once a month on, on uh, a local low-power station in Atlanta, Georgia, but then on the web uh, radio and also via podcast, via iTunes and all the usual channels, Stitcher, etc. And I'm a youngster thing and I don't know how you'll find that. Is it helping to keep the hobby going, getting it more into multimedia or are people turning away from it because they can't get the old, if you like, camaraderie of meeting up as much as they used to and they haven't really made the jump to forums? I mean, forums keep me alive as far as my cars go, for sure. Yeah, it's an interesting question, that. I mean, it's often said, especially with the TR register, that I generally halve the average age of the room whenever I walk into a meeting. Yeah, exactly. Um, But that said, you know, it's important for all car clubs, whether they're cars from the 60s or even some of the more modern classics, to engage with the next generation of people that are going to be enthusiastic about their cars. At the TR Register, it's always been kind of a core value to look towards the future and where the new blood's coming from. We've always been a very family orientated club, and it proves that you know myself at 32 and lots of others like me are still with the club, whether or not they can afford a classic car yet or not, they're still involved with the club. And some years ago, I, I actually 
was involved with the club setting up the TR Youth Group, as it was called. And it was a group within the car club that really was the voice and an identity for younger owners and younger people who wanted to be involved with the club that had aspirations one day of owning a TR. So TR registered, to use that as an example, is a very good club of, of em- that are looking to embrace the next generation, if you like. And as for forums and social media, you kind of got a split within car clubs at the moment. There are those that are staunchly against anything that takes them away from their local group meet down the pub and their paper magazine comes through the letterbox. And quite right too. Part of the reason why people join classic car clubs and are involved with classic cars is to kind of live in a bygone era and and experience an era that is no longer with us when, you know, arguably maybe, you know, a golden era when things were better. And there is that kind of, you know, retrospective view of things that is an appeal to owning a classic car. And that's great. But on the other hand, there's the other half of people that, um, you know, really want to use the tools that the modern world gives us to enhance the club experience and to build the club and to open up new ways of communicating with fellow enthusiasts and fellow classic car people that weren't there before. If you look back at the TR Register... We started off with a magazine called Spares News that was hand-tight, that was posted out, and every correspondence to the club had to be done by letters and the Royal Mail and Snail Mail, as you'd call it now, and everything took a long time and was actually very difficult in some ways to access some of the technical knowledge within the club. Nowadays, we have a forum, people can post a question on there, and within minutes, there's a plethora of answers social media all of our local groups pretty much use facebook or our new website which i can talk a little bit about in a moment but they use facebook in order to really promote what they're doing to a wider audience and to integrate it into people's everyday life a little bit more you know rather than having to pull out your magazine at the end of the day to remind yourself of what's happening in your local area with the tr club it's on your phone while you're waiting for the bus at work. It's a little reminder to say there's something good happening at the weekend that you should be involved with. So it depends how you look at it. Some clubs look at it as a bit of a threat, but if you use it in the right way and you have the real the real life events, if you like, where people are meeting each other face to face to back up that social media presence, it can be really powerful in increasing attendance to shows and increasing the communication between enthusiasts. So it's it's a powerful medium, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I've got a bit of a story with that one actually. I've got a 1929 Model A Sport Coupe that I imported from the states, and I've got it home, and I thought, oh my, what am I going to do with it? So I looked at the Ford barn, which is kind of the the main forum for that sort of stuff and lo and behold i live in reading and one of the foremost experts on model a's in britain lives in tadley which is like five miles away yeah so now we're buddies and save me more than once i I think that's the that's the thing really and sort of going to your point i I interviewed nigel case at the classic car club in london um a couple of interviews ago and they're really going for the lifestyle aspect of it as well so it's you know it's not just a classic car it's all these things and i think that's that's yeah. a key thing isn't it i think that's one of been one of the biggest changes within the classic car movement over the last 10 to 20 years really it's been a change from you know sort of greasy fingered car buffs sat in pubs discussing what widget to install over another and you know which uh, <laughs> which starter motor from which manufacturer is the best if you want to upgrade and things like that, which carburettors to install, what jets you need in your Webers, all that kind of stuff, to really people getting into classic cars as a way of enjoying quite often their retirement or their leisure time. And it's more about 
what that car gives you access to as much as the car itself in many ways. So, you know, a lot of the historic motorsport that you'll see is that's growing massively all over the world at the moment. We've got Silverstone Classic here. We've got Le Mans Classic this year as well. At the top level, people are buying into these historic motor cars in order to access that level of motorsport. And at the bottom level, people are buying into these classic cars in order to go on these trips through the Alps or through Europe, as a lot of our members do, and to meet like-minded people and to really enjoy the lifestyle that classic car ownership gives you and the camaraderie and the things that it gives you access to as well. Yeah, I, I, I interviewed Richard Dredge a while back and he came up with a very interesting point that um, a guy with an Austin Princess that was, as far as he was concerned, nostalgic, it was from his past, he loved it, and he turned up at a meet, uh, a well-known large banked track place, <laughs> no names yeah. mentioned, yeah. Uh, and they turned him away and said, that's not a classic. And I think there is there is a bit of a divide, isn't there, between, I don't know, maybe what you'd call the posh end of the classic and the everyman's classic, and I think that's a shame, really, do you? Yeah, you hear about that less and less, I think, now, because, of course, we're in a bit of a... There's a bit of a watershed moment in classic car ownership just at the moment because you've got a bit of a generational change, and you see this around events pretty pretty starkly, actually, in that the number of pre-war cars especially, and even cars from the 50s at events, is starting to dwindle, and you're seeing an increased interest in a lot of the cars from the late 70s, early 80s, your Jaguar XJSs, for example, your Mark I Golfs. And that's really because the next generation of classic car enthusiasts are coming into the market. This is Kevin Flood on the Classic Car Show from America's Web Radio. We'll take a break now and I'll be back with my guest Wayne Scott from the TR Register after these messages. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. America's Web Radio is the most diverse and informative radio station anywhere in cyberspace. We have shows about health, business, current events, entertainment, home care, and everything in between. We appreciate your continued support of America's Web Radio. 
Welcome back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio with today's guest, Wayne Scott. The majority of people, they buy a classic car because it was a car they saw when they were a kid and always wanted to own. So I think, yeah, there's always going to be that kind of snobbery, if you like, in the sort of investor circles, as I call them. But I think you're going to see that less and less as a new generation with slightly different loves of slightly more modern classics sort of come into it and and have a bit more of a force behind them. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I, I still can't get my head around the fact that a Mark 1 Golf is now classic. It just doesn't seem old enough. Yeah. But when you start thinking, actually, these things are now 25 years old, and they're now classics, effectively. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a big sea change, I think. Yeah, well, a perfect example of that is the newest car that we have in the TR register take the TR7 for example controversial as it is um, that celebrated its 40th anniversary last year now if you think back to the late 80s early 90s when people were turning up to classic cars classic car shows in TR4s for example and they were seen as thoroughbred classic cars the TR7 is sort of 20 years older than they were then so yeah you know the, these cla- the Rover SD1 and is another perfect example of that and this year the Jaguar XJ40 celebrates 30 years you know and that in anyone's book is the age where a car becomes a classic yeah and I, I think you're quite right I, I was chatting to Richard uh, Monk from the MG owners club and he's the same thing you know that some of the stuff that was actually turned out of longbridge and places like that after mg went down is now classic and it's uh, yeah it's it's quite amazing really in terms of what's designated as a classic now yeah i think that is kind of interesting just turning back to the the tr club the derivative cars are interesting to me i think i've seen a peerless but a Swallow, a Duretti, a Warwick, an Italia and a Grinnell, I've not seen. Are they going to be like a Bond-type variant? Well, they're all quite different, really. Um, yeah. The Warwick is very similar to the Peerless. That was another sort of vehicle that the, the company built the Peerlesses did. And we've got quite a few of those in the club. Grinnell, very interesting company. They built TR7 V8. And in sort of modern terms, you'd kind of class them as a customised car company with a slight difference in that you could take your TR7 to them and say, right, this is my TR7, it's five, ten years old now, and I want it to be a bit more sexy, can you drop a V8 in it? And they would, or you could go the full hog and have body kits added to them. They'd change the look of the car with the Rover SD1 rear lights, they'd widen the trap. And later, as Grinnell developed, they really developed the TR7 into where they thought British Leyland should have taken it and the later Grinnells for example and this is why their classes are derivative actually had a Grinnell VIN plate and they're very similar to Harris Mann's sort of sketches of a TR9 as he would have envisaged it Grinnell were effectively building under licence TR7 V8s with a very very different look their own design work done on them and their own VIN plates or their own identity as a mark but based on the TR7 so really interesting company based in Bewdley Worcestershire and of course he's still around building the Grinnell Scorpions that we see now the three wheeled trikes so ah yeah yeah, yeah. I didn't connect the two together that's, actually. Where, yeah. he, that's where he began Swallow Duretti's really interesting company they have a, that's our link to Jaguar really because um, a, a long sort of complicated story but basically it was the swallow sidecar company that yes over yeah. Jack built this car with an aluminium body built on top of a tr2 effect okay. it's a direct- i didn't realize that yeah because i had to remove the old ss thing which wasn't 
Indeed, yeah. It wasn't too good at the time. It wasn't too fashionable <laughs> in 1946, no. no. <laughs> oh, actually, I didn't, so I didn't realise that. So there is a real connection there. He used the running gear from a TR2 then. That's yeah, absolutely. And, and, and it, was, it was built in association with the factory at the time. So John Black famously crashed one into the gates at Banner Lane. So, you know, these were cars that were small-time manufacturers but working with Standard Triumph to produce cars almost you'd say under license in, in modern times but uh, yeah. yeah it's intriguing cars and of course the Italia is another one built over there in Italy and uh, probably one of the most valuable cars that holds the Triumph badge today. What sort of numbers are there of these vehicles left, do you think? Well, we've accounted for a few hundred of each, I would say. I don't have the exact figures in front of me, but take the Grinnells, for example, there were 350-odd made. We have the records of all of them. I think that the last count, 50-odd survived. Yeah, most of them are accounted for, whether they're still around or not. We have individual mark registrars in the club which hold all the records and constantly updating who owns which car and where they are in the world so each of those registrars has a particularly good handle on how, uh, where those cars are and who owns them and how many are left yeah they're all pretty rare they're all either in the hundreds or less certainly Italia is certainly less than a hundred around on the road this is why I'm really enjoying doing these interviews because I kind of think I know a little bit about cars and classic cars but then I come up on something somebody with the knowledge that you've got and I think really I don't know anything well, you can always learn stuff <laughs> oh, always always it's an amazing thing cars. I see most cars at most shows and have uh, taken pictures or written about most cars, but now and again something crops up and you think, what on earth is that? <laughs> I've never yeah. seen stepping away from classic cars for a minute. We are in a golden era at the moment in the motoring industry because there's a real change in the technology that's coming into vehicles this really exciting stuff around hybrid technologies and fuel cells and alternative fuels and internet connected vehicles and the whole motor industry is changing at such a pace at the moment it's it's almost like the changes you saw when you know the cars stepped from being the vintage shaped cars that we knew of the pre-war era into the sports cars and the aerodynamics that we knew of the 60s I think it's just as important it's interesting you say that i mean i I've got the 1929 car, I've got a 1966 car, and I've also got a, a year 2000 Chevy truck, and I've kind of got the technology jumps because I've got the you know the old shaped car as you say and the Herald was a kind of you know real mainstream car in the 60s 70s and then jump into the Chevy uh, it's the S10 so it's more or less the Isuzu based one so that's year 2000 that's full of computers and stuff like that so yeah it's it's a because most weekends I try and drive all three <laughs> so it's a kind of culture shock between and I'm six foot four and as you can imagine driving the 29 is interesting once I managed to fold myself in there so the, the thing that does worry me a little bit is future classics because with the amount of electronics and computers and all the various bits and pieces that are in these cars it it, might, it worries me a little that anybody's going to be able to reproduce these things going forward so like 30 years down the line will you still be able to get a computer for a jag or something like that that's that's kind of a kind of thing that i think is a little bit interesting as to what the way that will go mm, yeah it's uh of course cars are made with a different emphasis on them as well you know going back 30 40 years cars were built to have a certain shelf life with the ability to repair you know um now cars are made always with that end point in mind and cars are made to be recycled into fridges and they're being made so that 
they're very easy to turn into something else when they come to the end of their life, not necessarily with repair 20 years down the line in mind. You know, it's a different problem, really. In the old days, we had problems of them dissolving and rusting away in front of your very eyes. That doesn't happen anymore. Cars generally don't corrode. But problems you've got now is the computers and the electronics, as you say, and, and the ability for people to fix them on a budget years and years down the line. It's difficult to predict how easy that's going to be. They probably said the same about Lucas petrol injection systems when they first came out, and we've coped all right with them since. But yeah, it will be interesting to see whether a market generates around keeping the cars of today on the road in the future, or whether it's no longer seen relevant. And what we see as classics now are actually always the classics. It's going to be interesting to see how that pans out. Yeah, it is, because I, I think you've got such a choice of vehicles now, even stepping back 15 or 20 years, the choice of vehicle was so much less. And now there's such a, a number of brands and the model variations are just incredible. So and I think that's going to be an interesting thing. But going back to the TRs, was there ever a TR1? Oh, you've opened up a can of words there, Kevin. Yeah, I'm... because I've never seen a TR1. I've seen the others. <laughs> if you could step us through, the, the models would be interesting. I'm... There's several takes on what you could call a TR1. Some people would refer the TR1 as the Triumph Roadster, the post-war sports car with the wooden frame, which is not really correct because they're so far removed from the TR sports car range that came after. Of course, the TR2 was released to really plug the gap in standard Triumph's offering. They didn't have a sporting model that was up to date enough in 1953. A fact that not many people know is that Sir John Black, who was head of standard Triumph at the time, tried to buy the Morgan Car Company. And they said, uh, no, no thanks very much. He was so put out by this that he decided he was going to get standard Triumph back into a position where they had a good sports car to offer the world and stick two fingers up to Morgan. So that was kind of where the TR range came from. There is a TR1 in the sense that the early prototypes were very different from what ended up being the TR2. There's a series, a whole load of prototypes and uh, concept cars, very weird-looking sort of um, brushed aluminium-bodied, bare-metal-bodied car that you'll see in some books and magazines. But there was never a TR1 released to the public. The TR2 was the first car, and that was obviously the 1953 release to the world after Ken Richardson, who was the driver that had helped Standard Triumph develop the car, had seen this TR1, which was the prototype, and said, this is an absolute death trap. We've got to do something with this and spent more time working on it, ready for the motor shows of 1953. The TR3 followed the TR2 a couple of years later and was really just a facelift of the TR2. And they brought the grille further forward and just generally tweaked a few things here and there. Same with the 3A. Until, of course, they got an Italian designer in the early 60s, the release of the TR4, and they got Giovanni Michelotti to come along and uh, design the successor to the TR3A and the TR4. Then was the body shape that remained right the way through the 60s until 1969 when they had put off updating the TR range for long enough. They'd added a rear rear suspension upgrade to the TR4 and the TR4A. Independent rear suspension arrived and some very subtle body tweaks. The differences are very subtle, some interior differences, uh, face level ventilation and a handbrake move to the tunnel instead of the footwells, indicator repeaters and a different front grille of overrides that moved out. The TR5 is essentially a TR4A but with the six-cylinder injected engine in it. So you can see standard Triumph are trying to keep up with the market. They're trying to update their range but without putting all the money into developing a new model. Um, so the TR5 was a, a kind of a stopgap in between the 4A and the 6 while they could work out how they were going to afford a new model. Unfortunately, Michelotti was busy when they needed 
decided that they really couldn't put it off anymore and needed the TR6 to arrive. So they went to uh, uh, some Germans of uh, Carmen Gear fame, and uh, Carmen was the, uh, the design house that then took the TR5 or the 4A body. They actually used the TR4A that was sent to them from Standard Triumph to, uh, um, well, Triumph, British Leyland Triumph, as it would have been then, to actually uh, measure up and, and see what they could do. And the TR6 was born, and it was a lot, although a lot of the lines are very similar to what you find on the TR4s, it was a lot squared off at the end, and the front front elevations totally different, a bit more masculine, of course, with that six-cylinder engine. And that lasted from 69 right the way through until 1975, when the TR7 was launched to the public in America and went on sale in America. Production started in the end of 1974, but didn't go on sale in America till the year after, and actually didn't arrive in the UK until 1976. May, it went on sale in 1976 in the UK, and that was completely different to all of the TRs that, that came before it. Um, it, of course, uh, did away with the chassis and was a monocoque body construction. It was a four-cylinder engine and the famous controversial Harris Mann design with the wedge shape. So that's the sort of story of TRs from the beginning to the end. It was always a case, really, of development on a budget. This is Kevin Flood on the Classic Car Show from America's Web Radio. We'll take a break now and I'll be back with my guest, Wayne Scott, from the TR Register after these messages. Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years, Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio with today's guest, Wayne Scott. I suppose the engine size is kind of... Well, all of those Triumph engines have their origins in the the standard saloon engines, basically, the standard Vanguard engines. That was where they, they came from. And, and really, essentially, the blocks didn't change. They were just modified and increased capacity right the way up until the TR7 was introduced. So they, they all have their, their same sort of lineage all the way through, yeah. It's interesting because they ran the GT6, didn't they, alongside the TR6 or yep. before, I guess. But yeah, it's a couple of urban myths here for you to bust if you can. Uh, what about the standard name was changed to Triumph for the States because they felt standard would sound standard rather than triumphant? Yeah, I've heard that one before. It could well be true. I think it was probably more the fact that British Leyland had decided which names they wanted to carry forward and that, and Triumph was the one that probably translated to the export markets more. Interesting question that but uh, I've heard that before. It's been kicking around for a long time and I kind of, you kind of Google it and you get one lot of opinions and another it sounds feasible so mm. I, I think that one's alright. Now the TR7 was that designed with a, a monocoque and a roof 
and everything else that came with it because of the American market, or was it just that they wanted to go more modern in terms of a design? Absolutely, because there was this fear amongst all of the British car companies at the time. Bear in mind that the vast majority of British, well, certainly with the TRs, the vast majority went to America. Very few, relative to what was sold in America, were sold in the UK. So if they didn't adapt for the American market, the model just wouldn't get off the ground and it wouldn't have been feasible. So their eyes were always on America. And there was a big fear in the early part of the 1970s that America was going to increase their legislation on the safety of vehicles. There was this mad rules that they were bringing in about the, the speed at which a car had to crash into a wall before it deformed and all the British manufacturers jumped at changes for that. You'd see the rubber bumpers on all the MGs, the Jags and other cars at the time and one of those fears was that convertible cars were to be outlawed. So it was decided very early on that in order to get around this, the next TR had to be a coupe. Unfortunately, halfway through the development of the TR7, America actually Actually turned around and said, actually, that was just a thought. We won't bother with that anymore. But it was too late then, of course, to change what they wanted to do with the TR7. They were far too far down the line and, and design was already costing them a fortune as it was. So it, it continued to be a hard top with the convertible coming in in 1979. So, no, that is absolutely true. It's the horrible time of federal bumpers and, and all the rest of absolutely. it, which... Yep. destroyed the looks of anything from a Lamborghini to a Cadillac. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it was pretty horrible. Everyone the, suffered. Yeah. I, <laughs> the TR8, that kind of a bit of a afterthought or did they have that in mind from the beginning or what do you think to that? They had it in speaking with Harris Mann, he's convinced they had it in mind from the beginning. That engine bay was always designed to take a V8 engine. It's always been a bit of madness, in my view, that you've got this group of companies effectively under the British Leyland banner, and one of those group of companies is Rover, and they had the Buick-derived Rover V8, but instead of using that in the stag, they went and developed their own, you know? And so you've got all of these different levels of problems within British Leyland, one of which is the politics of you can't use one engine for one part of the company and another part of the company. I'm sure that has a lot to do with the story of why I didn't have a V8 from the stag. Of course, it was the time of fuel sh crises and fuel shortages, and no doubt, you know, they were very worried about unleashing a large engine sports car onto the market as well. But that engine bay was always designed to take that, that V8, and of course, towards the end of the production, they actually did stick it in a TR8 and, and send it over to America, and of course, it was received with open arms, and everyone loved it, and it sold very well. Few made it were made here for the UK, the right-hand drive TR8 made for the UK market, number less than 20. I think 17 or 18 is the official figure. Oh, I didn't realise that there was that few. That That's interesting. Few. A lot of them went to America. There's a lot more t genuine TR8s as left-hand drives over in America, and a few of them have been imported back to the UK. Yeah, I mean, I, I go to the States quite regularly because my, my main fascination is American cars, but the amount of TRs uh, right across the board is, as you say, staggering over there. Mm -hmm. They're everywhere. Yeah. And um, they're so popular and i think they go back to the days of where people were stationed over here in the forces and they'd taken them back and that's seen them over here then bought one and i was surprised there's quite a number of right-hand drives that i've seen over there as well right. so you know so it is interesting that they've taken them to their bosom perhaps more than we have I yeah yeah well as like i said earlier you know that was the 
that was Triumph's market. And when you look at the figures, I don't have them to hand, but you look at the figures of the number of, especially the earlier cars, the TR3s, for example, that were sold in America compared to the minuscule number that were sold here in the UK, you can see where the focus was for Standard Triumph and later British Leyland on, on selling those cars. It was all about America, as it was with the other British car makers at the time. Did they build any in the States, or were they all exported from here? All exported, yeah. So, because I know there was a fashion for knockdown kits, wasn't there, to, to build cars to get round taxation and import duties and stuff like that? Yeah, which, of course, is still going on to this day. Um, MG's a very good example of using techniques like that. So There's a few little stories like that, but yeah, generally speaking, they came out of uh, the Triumph factories and were shipped across. Excellent. They had quite some success in Canada as well, didn't they? I guess because it's a Dominion at the time, so the taxation was less too. So, Right, I'll get back to you again now. I guess, I mean, the next question is probably a little bit redundant now, but your favourite classic car? Well, uh, you know, it has to be the TRs, one of the TRs. To try and pick my favourite TRs, like trying to ask someone to pick their favourite child. Uh, but I, I drive a 7V8, a Grinnell version of the 7V8 myself. I have great love for my dad's TR4, which is an interesting car in itself. It's actually a GTR4 Dove, another derivative, really. They were made by Doves of Wimbledon. Uh, they had TR4s shipped to them from Triumph's factory. Harrington, of Sunbeam Alpine fame, designed the roofs and they were constructed by doves of Wimbledon and sold by doves as a derivative of the TR4 so oh, okay. they made approximately 53 of those of which less than 20 survive now so that's the car I love and you can't beat a good old red TR6 uh, no you can't and that was the uh, that was the Disco Boy's favourite back in the 70s, that was. Yeah. And I'm a massive fan of Jaguar as well. I think Jaguar are just the best brand on the planet to me. And I've had a, a quite a few XJ6s, right away from the XJ40 squared off-shape ones, the more modern X300. I absolutely love Jaguar, I think, just as a, as a broad range of cars and the way they've changed motor and history throughout their, their time has is, is just been phenomenal. And they're still doing it now. The F-Pace that they've just recently brought out the XE and the F-Type sports car, I think are some of the most exciting cars on the planet right at the moment. So, uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of Jaguar as well. Yeah, I think sort of Ian Callum is a throwback, really, isn't he, in terms of a car designer? He is. They've got the flavour and the... I mean, his own car is amazing, isn't it? It, Yeah, (laughs) it's just the creative flair that seems to be in Jaguar at the moment, I think, is, and the passion they all seem to have for Jaguar is really coming through in the cars that they're producing at the minute. It's, it's really exciting. Yeah, I was telling the guys on, on the show here about the controversy about the lightweights, where they've um, continued the chassis numbers and it's caused a little bit of controversy in terms of they can't run at classic um, level racing and stuff like that. So it's a, a kind of interesting yeah. controversy. That uh, one. Lord March has said that uh, he'll never have one at Goodwood because he considers them a replica. But you could debate that for many, many, many hours and not come to a conclusion because no. at the end of the day, they are built by the factory and uh, continuing numbers. Whether they're genuine, wow. <laughs> we the thing. Out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, the, the TV programme documented it well that they were doing it in the old style, using the old materials. Yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame, really, because it, it really does keep the skills together. Yeah. As a you work know. of art, as a piece of automotive sculpture, I don't think it gets much better. 
No, it's a piece of period history, probably not as relevant. No, you're right, and I think. But then I guess it gives somebody the chance to own something that they would not be able to buy because I don't think many people are selling the originals that are left. There's that. Yeah, <laughs> as long as it doesn't end up at Barrett Jackson and go for three times more than it should. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing. Um, so you've got your you've got your TR7 V8. Is, have you just have the one at this point? Yeah, just just else? the one. I've had I've had two at times. Uh, <laughs> And yeah. the trouble with multiple classic car ownerships when you have to work for a living is you never really get finished on either of them. You know, there's no. a bit of stuff that you never really get around to finish. But uh, yeah. like just the one TR and uh, just the one XJ6 Jag and then an old Rover 600 that I would bash around in during the winter month. We've also got the UK problem of absolutely no space anywhere here to keep anything. Well, this is the, yeah, that's very true. You can't have them sat outside, that's for sure. No, and I, I paid a ridiculous amount of money for a cover for my Chevy that does sit outside and that's starting to fall to pieces now so I'm going to have to buy another one of those all the usual stuff <laughs> how about um, buyer's remorse have you ever bought a basket case because love is blind of course when it's a car <laughs> <laughs> well I wouldn't call it buyer's remorse but yeah I suppose my first car was a bit of a basket case it was a bit of a running repair job it was a TR7 that I had at uni I was so keen to get into the into the TR scene you know at the moment I could afford one I, I went and got one but of course I couldn't afford very much and i bought this car off ebay and paid about a grand for it and it was interesting because it had and this is where i discovered grinnell really it had the grinnell body shape to it and a tuned two liter engine and it was just really exciting you know and my mates were sort of rolling around in Vauxhall courses i managed to get this tr7 and insure it under a modern insurance policy because it was an 82 car and just tell them it was an old banger of a triumph and they insured it for less than most of my mates were paying on voxels which was great but yeah most of it was made out of filler unfortunately and the bits that weren't made out of filler were made out of halford's glass fiber resin kits and i think much more repair work went on under my ownership just to get it to work on monday morning but yeah there, there was a lot of welding and, and repairs and bodges went on, on that car just to keep it going but in its fair in, in its credit to be fair to it i covered forty thousand miles in that car over the five years i owned it so it did pretty well really um, and it, i sold it to an enthusiast in the club who has since stripped it down and is undergoing a full restoration on it so that's nice it, it's gonna yeah, that's it's good it's probably got x wayne scott Yes, as you can imagine, uh, the the final years of my university days, me and that car had a lot of adventures. Yeah, I can imagine. (laughs) Which is the advantage of it being a TR7, of course, as opposed to it. Um, Well, that seller's remorse then, one that you sold that you thought the minute as it was driving away, your heart sunk as it disappeared. Yeah, I've just had that, actually. (laughs) I kicked myself already. I kicked myself the moment I handed the keys over, really. But it was one of those cases that the guy that that wanted it offered me a certain amount of money, and I thought, well, I'd be stupid to turn it down. But it was the, my last XJ6 Jaguar. It was the X300 shape, the last of the line, and it was the four-liter straight six without the supercharger on it, black leather, full sport kit in it, you know. And uh, they made very few of them because most of them were either 3.2 sports or they were 4-litre with the supercharger. So quite a rare version of the car. And I sold it just before Christmas and I'm already wishing I hadn't. So that's probably my biggest uh, seller's remorse. This is Kevin Flood on the Classic Car Show from America's Web Radio. We'll take a break now and I'll be back with my guest Wayne Scott from the TR Register after these messages. 
45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Hi, this is Steve Ronaldo, host of the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio. Uh, just talking to you about antique car insurance. I think that uh, if you're looking for the best coverage for your classic car, consider J.C. Taylor Insurance. They've been our my insurer for years in this hobby and have the top rating of every, all of the insurance companies in the hobby. When you get ready for insurance, call J.C. Taylor or visit jctaylor.com on the Internet. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Classic Car Show on America's Web Radio with today's guest, Wayne Scott. I'll have another. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. And at times I thought, I uh, really should have kept that one. But mm. on to the next one. On to the next one. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Could, um, we, we touched on the history of the TR register earlier. Could you give us a little bit of a potted history? Because you've obviously gone, it's gone from being quite a small club to a substantially large club for the mark now. Yeah, well, unlike today where probably TRs are one of the best supported classic car marks for spares, towards the end of the 1960s, it was very, very difficult to get parts, to get spares and to repair the early cars economically. So we're talking TR2 to 3A. And a lot of the owners would sort of see each other out on the road and give each other a wave. But there was no real club for them to come together under. You had Club Triumph, which was the company's owner's club, if you like, motor club. There was a real feeling in the end of the 60s that in order to keep these cars on the road that everyone was so passionate about, people were going to have to come together to put pressure on the suppliers to keep making the parts and to, to help people restore them, to pool the knowledge, if you like. So in 1969, a letter appeared in motorsport magazine from a chap called terry simpson and he wrote this letter in just really saying there's nothing out there for side screen tr owners how about all the side screen tr owners reading motorsport magazine come together the letter appeared in the winter of 1969 the meeting was set for january the 11th 1970 and terry and his wife turned up and no one else did <laughs> and they were just literally about to leave hot cross Holt, which is still to this day remains a hotel with a bar in uh, Oxfordshire and if you go into that bar you'll see a big gold plaque on the wall there saying this is where the TR register began and just as they're about to leave I must also mention sort of to put this story into context it was about two foot deep of snow on this day in January they heard a TR engine coming down the road followed by several others and by the time they'd finished waving all of these cars into the car park they were well over 200 TRs assembled in Hot Cross Hall and that was where the club began and it 
grew through the 70s pretty slowly, really, because it really was focused on side-screen TRs. It was TR2 to TR3A. You were an associate member if you had a car with wind-up windows, so TR4 and later. You certainly weren't allowed in if you had a, a TR7 uh, in, the, in the late 70s, So because they were modern cars. So it grew fairly slowly until the sort of early 80s boot. Um, anyone of a certain age would probably remember in classic cars where the TR register really just took off. They then opened the club up to all TR owners and later include the 7 and 8 owners as well. And it's been in growth ever since then, really, and today enjoys 7,000 members worldwide. There's 53 local area groups in the UK with a whole range of TR registers around the world as well um, that are affiliated to the, the mother club, if you like, in the UK. And it's a worldwide TR family, really. And it started from just one letter in Motorsport magazine at the end of 1969. I'm assuming that you've got a lot of members in the US, because obviously with this show going out in the US and such a following for the TRs out there, you're obviously going to have quite a lot of contact from those guys. Yeah, we do. I mean, the TR register has a lot of American members itself, but America, you know, going back to that that same old thing, it was such a massive market for Triumph in the day that America already had some quite large established Triumph clubs of its own. So you've got the Triumph Sports Owners club of america and people like that so they kind of got their act together a little bit quicker than we did here in the uk so we work closely with those existing clubs over in america and we support each other with information yeah. i think pl- the classic car hobby here is is quite healthy but we just don't have the numbers and the space that they've got in the states and i think that's that's kind of the yeah there yeah. it is really so some sort of level of membership and benefits are there is there different levels of membership and different benefits or is it kind of a subscription and they get a whole raft of things or yeah it's uh, it's it's one level of membership really with the we're required in the uk to have a couple of other levels of membership so you're a main member in the uk and that has a certain price and then you're a member overseas which has a slightly larger price because of the postage costs of the magazine and in the uk because we've we are a motor club, so we basically are underneath the MSA, which is the Motorsports Association in the UK. So we're required to have a junior subscription rate as well to allow younger people, they're basically age 12 to 17, to compete in motorsport, basically. So we have a junior membership, which is half the price for 12 to 17-year-olds. And then there's a £2 membership for family members. So it's quite popular with our membership just to add to the wife or some of the kids when they're born onto a family membership under the same membership number. So that's quite a nice thing. But uh, generally speaking, there's sort of one level of membership and it's an annual subscription. What sort of take-up do you have from the younger element? Because that's a, a real key and it's a real concern for the guys on this show and in the States in general, the sort of greying of the hobby. Do you feel that there's still another wave coming through? Well, we've certainly tried to promote it in the TR register. Uh, we've had the TR Youth Group, which has run since 2006, has 400-odd followers on its Facebook page, and they get generally 30-odd cars to their main event, in which is their youth weekend. So the effort is there. There's so many problems with it, though. You know, We're seeing a real big boom in classic car prices at the moment. So although the 7 and 8 is fairly entry-level and you can still pick them up for sort of three to £5,000, most of the other TRs are starting to creep out of the realm of you know younger people being able to afford them you know your average early tr now is is a, is a graduate's annual salary you know and that's a lot of money to have as a second toy so really what it's about for us is keeping kids in the family involved with the club and involved with the cars to keep the enthusiasm alive whether that's through ownership or just involvement
movement through families in the hope that, you know, as, as people get older and as they get more disposable income, they'll be able to enter into ownership. Of course, you know, that they'll be handed down through families, which we're already seeing a lot of as well. So it is a problem with all classic car clubs to recruit younger members. Um, I think it's a, it's a problem in general for all motor clubs, in fact. Motoring is just not cheap at the moment and there's so many other distractions and pulls on, on young people's time, you know. So uh, it's a challenge, but we're certainly trying our best. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Most people want to use both their thumbs rather than get a driving licence and drive a car, which is a real thing to drive. <laughs> yeah, and there's so, there's so much more leisure activities open to, to people, you know, to get involved yeah. in. There's a lot more going on in the world than there was 30, 40 years ago. So, you know, you've got to be a real petrol head enthusiast to, to get into them. But that said, you know, can the family element involve all of the people that we've got who are, say, under the age of 35, 40 in the club have all come into the club through families. So I think that's that's the key way of doing it. Yeah, no, I'd agree with that. As long as the interest is kept up until they can actually get one handed down or have enough money to buy one, and then that's the that's as good as you can do, really, isn't it, I think? Yeah. Just a few little things about the club. Events, do you have a number of yearly shows, motoring events, motorsport-type stuff? Yeah, so we have our annual TR International Weekend this year is 15th to the 17th of July up at uh, Lincoln Showground, which is an event that's been running since 1979, I think. Our first event we had at Donington Racetrack and went to Prescott and various other locations. We've been settled at Malvern in Worcestershire for the past sort of decade with a few trips up to Harrogate and North Yorkshire. But it is the largest collection of TRs, certainly in the UK, probably the world, and is a really, really fantastic weekend. We've got track days, we've got auto solos all part of the weekend, concours, pride of ownership, we have arena displays, which I present with ex-Triumph Competition Secretary Graham Robson, and we have lots of interesting cars in the arena, and people can sit out in the stands and watch all of these cars and the interviews that we do. So, yeah, it's a massive event. This year, it's going to be even bigger, because we've come together with a few other Triumph clubs. Club Triumph for hosting their National Day with this, and on Sunday, we're opening it up and hosting a National Standard Triumph Mark Day for all Standard Triumphs on the Sunday this year. So we're hoping mm-hmm. to get the largest collection of Triumphs ever seen in one place this year's International Weekend. All of the Triumph clubs work under the banner of the Standard Triumph Forum, and that's really about getting all of these Triumph clubs to, to work together. And I think that's essential for the scene as, as it heads forward. We're oh. fragmented as a group of owners, and the more we can get those clubs to work together, the better. I'd rather see a full field of different Triumphs and a quarter of a field of stags or something like that, you know, and it, it would certainly, people will think, wow, look at the range of cars that they built. It'll be interesting to see them all in one place. I think that's a really good initiative. Yeah, yeah. Um, you got some other things. You have the club shop. Yeah, we have the club shop where we sell sort of a lot of the stuff you'd expect a club to be selling, a lot of regalia, memorabilia stuff. We've also developed with Penrite Oils a classic Triumph oil. We work with them very closely to develop this oil that specifically is designed to work with older Triumph engines. It's a 2060 oil and it contains lots of different chemicals that help cars when they're laid up over long periods of time as well. So we work with Penrite with those. They're available exclusively through our club shop and they were developed on the track at Le Mans, at Classic Le Mans in 2014 where Penrite were our sponsors there. So that's exciting stuff. We have launched a brand new website in the last six months and that 
includes a members area and when you're a member of the club you get to log into this area and within that area there's video seminars on lead loading panel beating gearbox rebuilds all of that kind of thing tr electrics so you have access to this vast resource of information and technical help online for all of the membership to access whenever they need to we've obviously got the club forum we run track days we've got discounts with big restoring companies people like dynatrol zirkatech who do the ceramic exhaust coatings do a discount for our members um it's access to the community as well so i've spoke about the local group system that we have we've got an insurance company that runs an insurance policy especially for tr register members and of course the club magazine adding to my list of jobs i'm also editor of as well which goes out every six weeks the ship as well so uh, yeah lots of lots of benefits and, and in the new year we're we're looking to take the tr register historical archive that is big racks of paper and books and various photographs that have been collected over the decades that held our hq in didcot because uh, we have offices in, in oxfordshire and put that online for all of the membership to access as well so that's the next project do you have anything at didcot in terms of museum or anything like that no we don't have a museum as such but effectively what we have is uh, a unit where the offices upstairs and a boardroom are kept um, we have two full-time members of staff in the offices there that are answering members inquiries and then we have the workshop underneath which we do use occasionally for technical seminars we do that gearbox seminar in there and it, it of course is home to ts2 which i haven't mentioned yet which the tr register owns as part of a trust the tr register is the owner of um, ts2 which is the second ever triumph tr2 built and the first ever right hand drive tr built and it was built for press purposes and for the motor show in 1953 and to celebrate the anniversary in 2013 at the nec we actually recreated sir john black's speech as he unveiled the car 60 years ago so uh, that the club holds that car in trust and that car is available for any of our members to come and view and actually to loan out oh really yeah for use in club rallies and anything that promotes the club basically so you can pop down to didcot you can loan out um the uh, first ever right hand drive tr and take it to your local club event to promote the club with so it's oh, a great benefit of being yeah. it's, a, it's a great road. car it's fantastic no, i measure interest to uh, the bonus revival up in scotland this year and i also took it to a goodwood revival as well so uh, it's been around do you want to throw out the uh, web address or any contact emails or anything like that if anyone's interested in in contacting the site or emailing sure you can find all the information you need to know on trs and the tr register at www.tr-register.co.uk and the press office you can email as well press at tr-register.co.uk for any information as well well thanks for the interview today wayne it's been very enlightening for me um <laughs> and i'll say that this is kevin flood on the classic car show for america's web radio signing off and also saying goodbye to wayne thanks kevin catch you soon thanks wayne you're listening to americaswebradio.com the pioneer and leader in chat radio thank you for listening